Hi, I'm Kim Polishuk. And I'm Jen Giffen from Shooks and Giff, the the podcast. podcast. A part of the Education Podcast Network. Just like the show you're listening to right now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Dan Warren Mutchler. He is the founder of FM Initiative, a former attorney, a graduate of law school, passed the bar in two states, traveled to many places, learned about many different religious teachings, spent four weeks in the Peruvian Amazon, graduated tops in his class, got himself an awesome college degree, and would you know it, in high school, he barely graduated with a 1.7. Dan talks about what got him on track to success, what might help unmotivated kids, and shares his leader coaching program, FM Initiative. Lots to learn today. Thanks for listening. And by, by, by the way, don't forget, it would be so awesome if you would go open that uh, podcast platform you're listening to me on and uh, rated, reviewed, and subscribed. Could you? Would you? Please, 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 please. <laughs> Thanks. Enjoy. You know, a couple of years ago, my uh, my wedding band started having problems. And I've had it for 34 years, and uh, it started breaking at, at the backside of it. And we got it fixed a couple of different times. And then eventually, not too long ago, one of those, that backside just fell out, and it couldn't be fixed any longer. And I'm like, this is crazy. I, you know, I shouldn't have to deal with this. And and so anyway, then a friend told me about uh, Boone Titanium Rings, and uh, which is at boonrings.com, and they have this incredible selection of titanium rings. And and uh, I now have a titanium ring as my wedding band. What's really cool is like it's an engraved ring that has uh, these cool car pistons on it and some stars. And and I could have chosen from any kind of different stand, uh, styles, as well as they have all these other different types of rings like. Uh, inlays that have meteorite wood acrylic stone and things like that they also make uh, carved rings and, and, a, and just a, an assortment of other rings that uh, are just pretty amazing they also make pendants and cufflinks and earrings and as well as a couple different types of tools um, I gotta tell you something it's really cool because this ring's not gonna break <laughs> and uh, they, they'll make you happy and uh, just as a note to uh, Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, um, they've become an affiliate sponsor for us. And so if you were to use our code, which is capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, the number 12, and uh, use that at checkout, you get 10% off your ring and uh, Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 gets a commission. I think you're going to love their rings. I know I'd love mine. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Today, I'm talking with Daniel Warren Mutchler. He's a former attorney and avid self-educator, now the founder of FM Initiative, which helps leaders who are struggling in their lives to become self-actualized and thrive. He's here to talk to us about how, despite not performing well academically at the K-12 level, people can still turn their lives around and graduate college top of their class and maybe even go on to graduate school. And just as a note, we're going to get into this idea about how to save confident but unmotivated students. So, Dan, thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. I really, I'm really proud to be here. Well, Dan, I'm, I'm glad we're getting a chance to, to talk. And uh, um, what I want to do first is uh, 
you grew up in the Pacific Northwest. So just tell us a little bit about what you like and don't like about the Pacific Northwest. Let's just go there first. Sure. So the Pacific Northwest is primarily the states of Washington and Oregon. And maybe sometimes Idaho is included in that too. And having traveled a lot, I didn't quite realize the differences. Oregon actually has a unique, um, lack of a better word, biome where there's very specific trees and plants that only grow in this region. And it's, it's sort of like an American rainforest because we get lots and lots and lots of rain. And that just makes everything green and the trees grow really tall. And almost everywhere you look, there's, a, there's little forests and things like that and creeks and things of that nature. It's beautiful. Very cool. That's, I've always heard that. I've not been out there. I've been to Alaska, but uh, that was, I had to get there by plane. So I didn't go through those areas that you're talking about and uh, flew over them. But uh, I got to tell you, I probably was sleeping. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, awesome. I, I've been out in a lot of different places out West. Uh, I'm only, um, went to school in New Mexico for a while and uh, um, been in Colorado and uh, other states that are Western Texas and such spent a little bit of time in Arizona and uh, um, and a couple times in California, but uh, never up there into the, the great wilderness. Yeah. So, so have you been to the red where the redwoods are? I I've driven past them. I haven't visited them yet. I really want to, if you, if you see the, the, the third star Wars film return of the Jedi. Yes. The, the one that was made, the one that was made third in order, they actually filmed that in the Redwood Forest, and they actually have some of the lots of ferns that only grow in this whole the West Coast, and so you can see them in that movie if you if you kind of want to see what it looks like. If you go further up north, the woods change a little bit. There's actually like a few places where there's a mountain ranges, and so you cross over those, and all of a sudden you're in a completely different sort of area with different plants and trees and things like that. But I've been to some of the states that you listed too, and I think they're all. They all have the unique characteristics. Like you go out to Nevada and you can go out into some of the national parks and they have just amazing rock formations. Oh, yeah. uh, there's like all sorts of really cool. There's like a place called like Fire Canyon, I think. And it's just got like these amazing red, like they almost look like sculptures, but they're, they're nature, right? They're nature. Right. It's amazing. Uh, there's an area in uh, Texas, uh, the park's called Big Bend and uh, it has amazing uh, natural sculptures like what you're talking about and uh and many of those states same way i mean it's just when, when i went to school in new mexico the you know difference between northern new mexico and southern new mexico is 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 pretty um pretty interesting and uh um but it's just you know just amazing when you're out in these different areas of the states now i love where i am now too i'm in georgia and we got cool stuff but we don't have we have you know we have mountains we have coastline we have uh, sandy areas you know we have a little bit of all of it and uh so we have some natural stuff here too so if you haven't been here we got to get you to georgia sometime so yeah yeah i see a lot of pictures from the, that area i've also looked at maps before and it seems like there's like a line kind of right around the mississippi where it's very there's a lot of cities and stuff to the right of it on the east and then there's just a big blanket of nothing and then there's the <laughs> west coast so i've always been interested because it looks so like intricate like almost like a web or something because there's all these little cities everywhere and it's all connected and then there's like this big blank area right past the mississippi yeah so yeah, it is kind of funny that way you know it's the uh um go back in time just a little bit and uh pioneers going i can't imagine they're going once they got past that mississippi going are we really going that way you know it's like yeah okay Dense land, yeah. Uh, very much so. Okay, so let, let's talk a little bit about, I, I got to ask you something else. So, so if we're, uh, um, 
let's talk about you as a as a kid. So, yeah. and let's go before high school. So, as a as a as a young Dan in elementary school, what were you thinking about your future was going to hold for you? I mean, did you have thoughts about what you want to do? You know, when I was a kid, I mean, I, I think I had the same. If you're young enough, you have like three careers in mind, right? There's like the, the doctor, the policeman, and the fireman, right? And that's all that's in your head. Like maybe I'll be one of those. You don't think about the whole range of it. But I was very imaginative as a kid. I had a lot of imagination and I was constantly daydreaming. I wasn't thinking so much about the future, I guess. I wasn't thinking about the future probably until I graduated high school. And that's when I kind of got kind of jarred a little bit. And I was like, uh... I got this whole life ahead of me. I might want to think about what I'm going to do. But back then I, I was very, I was very much a daydreamer. I was constantly being distracted. It was very hard for me to pay attention in class. And I didn't have, I don't remember really having any aspirations besides what I was going to do after school, right? Like I'm going to go home and visit with my grandma or I'm going to go that was one of the places I went to after school a lot was I would go to my grandma's house and she would babysit me. So I would think about what I was doing there, you know, maybe hanging out with my friends. It was very simple and I had a lot of imagination, but I wasn't very artistic back then either. Gotcha. So, uh, so I got, got to ask since you mentioned this. So uh, do you know the cartoon Calvin and Hobbes? Oh yeah. It's funny you bring that up. That was one of my favorite books growing up. I, that's one of those things where I started to learn how to read. Right. And uh-huh if you want to really teach someone how to read at a young age, you find what they like and just give them that like anything that they want to read to make sure that they have that in front of them. It doesn't matter what it is. If they are young enough, if they want to read something, you make sure they have it as long as it's not like completely adult. Right. But as long as they want to read something. So Calvin Hobbes was one of those things where I was really liked it. And my mom would just, she would get anything. Anytime I want a new Calvin Hobbes book, it was like, okay, let's go get one. Awesome. I always loved his daydreams, especially when the teacher's calling on him and you're seeing him fighting off evil aliens and stuff like this. And it turns out he's in class with the, with the teacher actually, calling him. I actually had an orange cat growing up. So I think nice. without really fully realizing it, I really attached myself to that character in a lot of ways. That's very cool. Very cool. So, so let's shift gears. Let's get a little older and let's, let's, let's go up into um, high school like you're talking about. And, you know, one of the things that uh, um, I've heard you say is that, uh, you know, after high school, you started thinking about uh, uh, becoming a vending machine repairman, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Yeah, but yeah. Tell us a little bit about what, what, I mean, what was high school like? Because you discover, like you, you just alluded to a minute ago, you discover that uh, I'm in high school. Maybe I need to start, I mean, having some gonna, plans or something. I think I'm going to spoil the story just a little bit here and oh. say I, I graduated high school with a 1.7 GPA, which kind of paints the picture already what that high school experience might've been like for me, which means if you don't know what a 1.7 GPA is, it's low. It's very low. It's basically your C or D average. And um, the fact that I actually graduated was a miracle in its own, given that grade point average and my, uh, the amount of effort I put into it. I, I went into high school very similarly. I was at, I, I, one of my earliest memories is I was so excited to get a girlfriend. Like that was my main, my main goal. It wasn't to perform academically. I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I'll meet a girl. And I did meet a few girls in high school and, I, and we were friends. But that was like my, my first thing. I, like, I didn't really think about it. It's funny because I'm very different now. I, I would love to go back to school and learn more. Like that's like a passion of mine now. But back then, not quite so much, not quite so much. So I was, I was very unmotivated to do my schoolwork. 
that's very established. I, I didn't do a lot of my schoolwork and I was very focused on other things. I was frequently getting in trouble for talking in class. Uh, I didn't do anything majorly crazy, but I definitely wasn't doing very well academically. And that was a kind of a cloud over my head. And sometime in middle school, I was actually diagnosed with attention deficit disorder also. So I kind of had these clouds over my head that um, not necessarily directly impacting my performance, but they kind of, they, they didn't always make it easy for me to have a good attitude about it. I got you. And, you know, when we, when we spoke uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, cause we get kind of like this brief intro, which was really cool. And I appreciate you doing cool. that. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I asked you was, cause you're talking to a former principal, a former assistant principal. And uh, one of the things I said to you was, okay, I got to ask you this because, you know, with a 1.7, um, there's one, there's usually one of three things going on. And, and one is you're either in a lot of trouble <laughs> all the time and, right. or two, you're kind of withdrawn from everything. Um, or three, you're, you're just, uh, um, you know, just kind of all over the place. And, uh, it, and, uh, and so I asked, asked you, did you fit in one of those categories? And so tell me a little bit about that because, you know, a lot of times the ones who are all in trouble and stuff like this, they're just in trouble. They're not, they have no intention of really thinking about the future. And then the ones that are just kind of all over the place, that's really, you know, it's just, it's just who they are and you're trying to help them figure things out and you hope they figure it out before they get out of school. And then yeah, you just got these different categories. So tell me which, where you fit into that. Well, I wasn't a, a, too much of a trouble causer besides talking in class. <laughs> I mean, I, I probably would be a better story if I was like driving around in motorcycles and having a good time, but I, I wasn't that guy. I, I was, I was talking in class. Occasionally I would get sent to detention, but most of the time I would get sent to detention for not doing my homework. Nice. I remember a lot of times being in detention during the, the big break, the brunk, you know, the lunch break, and I have to go get my lunch and eat in there because I, I hadn't done my homework or I had spoken in class. So th that's what I got slapped on the wrist for. And I ended up in being in a detention more than most kids just because of those two things right there. I remember frequently just having to take my lunch and going down to my lunch break. I wish you know, I would have taken my homework and done it then, but <laughs> I think one of the, the reasons that I kind of fell through the cracks academically and this is more of the sociological reason that's kind of a trend is that I came from a divorced family. So I was primarily working with my mother who was working full time. She was very busy trying to support us and, and make sure that everything was fine on that front. And then after school, I would go home to my grandma's and she, she, she wasn't a very strict person. She was, she was strict with me on one key thing and that was learning the Eastern States. So it's funny that you're from the East Coast because she was very strict for a very short period of my life that I had to learn each state. It was like some summer and she, she made me learn each state on that East Coast because there's so many little tiny ones yes. and where they were. And I learned all sorts of little facts and that information stayed with me forever because you don't forget the things you learn very easily. You might forget some of the little details, but like the broad scope of it, I, I kept with me. And so, but besides that, it was just kind of, she wanted things to be good and warm, right? Like most grandmas do. And so I would go out to that environment and there wouldn't be a lot of pressure for me to do homework. She just wanted things to be, she just wanted me to feel good and be well. And that's exactly what I was. And so I th I'm pretty sure I, I kind of fibbed a little bit too. Like, oh, do you have any homework today? No, no, it's all done. And, you know, and then three months later, I'm sure you've been here, you know, some kids lying to their parents and then three months later, there's like this mountain of homework that they find out is due, you know, it's like, yes. oh, end of the term, by the way, your kid hasn't done any homework. We need it all done now. Now you just you just said something that never happens. A kid tell their parent or grandparent or whoever they live with, 
what homework? I don't have any. No, I'm good. I'm all caught all up. Done. Yes. All, done. <laughs> all done. Yeah, it's all done. It's all done. I worked on it today. Yeah. <laughs> and they find out, guess what? Remember I told you all done? I need help. It's due tomorrow. What? Yeah. And then you get the phone call, right? And then, oh, you're, you're, you're getting a D in, in English. Oh, what? Oh. <laughs> Oh, look at all this stuff in my backpack. We found all the assignments that you're not doing, you know, and, I, and then there was this big rush period and, you know, it's all this stress on me that I had, and now I had to sit there and do the, the worksheets and turn them in late. And so I could get a C, so I could get a C. Yeah. You gotta, you know, that's, sorry. I, um, you know, and what's interesting about something that you said is that, I mean, you're not, so the type of trouble you're in is a type of trouble that lots of kids get in because they they'll talk too much. Um, and you're not really withdrawn from the world, are you? Was I, I was, I, I, I remember going through high school and there was definitely some kids that were more withdrawn. I had a, I had a friends group. I would go to the football games that would happen on the weekends with a, a, a group of friends. And so I wasn't completely withdrawn. I wasn't completely withdrawn. I was lucky in that regard, but even though I wasn't withdrawn, it didn't make any difference in the way I handled myself academically. Gotcha. And, uh, and so, you know, with that, that going on there, you just, you're kind of a little in different places. And one of the things that happens, and you, you talked about this before, is that uh, somewhere in there you got uh, diagnosed with ADD or ADHD? Um, I don't recall. I think it was more like ADD. I wasn't hyper. But I think it, from my perspective, it was just daydreaming in class. And so they're like, oh, he's not focusing and he's not doing his homework. Let's, let's ride him a slip here and see if we can figure out what the deal is. And, and I took Ritalin for a very short amount of time. And that's something I wanna, wanted, wanted to bring up was that something you mentioned to me was you wish it never happened because you kind of got a label on you that kind of frustrated you. Could you talk about yeah. that a little bit? Yeah, I talked about this on a, a different podcast I did. And I thought that we should re, re, rename it. Uh, you know, I'm not a professional, but I thought we should rename it Attention Deficit Variance. Because I think a lot of people get this label. And they, they, they have this disorder, right? And it's this big burden that they have to carry and they're not going to succeed because of this disorder. And people have to treat them differently now because they have this disorder, in quotes. But ultimately, a lot of those kids, they grow up and they become a lot more, I don't know, stable, normal. And some of, they, I've read a study once that said that a lot of CEOs are diagnosed with ADD, you know? So it's like, well, you know, it's probably not a disorder if there's some sort of advantage at some point later, or even maybe in the moment that we're just not understanding it correctly. Understanding correctly. But yeah, I did feel a stigma. I remember the day I got diagnosed and I went to middle school and I walked in there and I just felt like I was no longer part of my friend group. Like they didn't even know yet, but in my mind, I was like, they just know I'm different. I'm, I'm not, I'm not normal. I'm not normal. That, that had to be frustrating because I know, you know, it's, it's well-meaning adults often come up and I love it, the title that you gave it, a variance. That's a good thing because it doesn't sound bad then. It doesn't. <laughs> it's, and, uh, but it's like, uh, you know, it, it's like back in the day when um, there were special classes that would uh, have a special hallway that, and those were the only classes that were carpeted in the building, you know, and, <laughs> and you know, and I can't imagine a kid going, Oh, good. I get to walk down the carpeted hallway into the carpeted classroom where none of my friends are now. And yeah, yeah. I had that classroom too. It was called the, uh, what was it? The learning center. Yeah. And it was, it was terrible. I got sent to the learning center when I was in high school. Cause I wasn't, I wasn't doing my work. I wasn't doing my work, Stephen. And I got sent there and I remember walking out one weekend and 
all my friends were just hanging out there arbitrarily. They didn't know I was in there when I mean, they, maybe they did. And I was like, and they're like, Oh, you go to the learning center. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, I do. It was, nice. it was not, it was not the easiest time. So what ends up happening is you do eventually graduate and, you know, and one of the things that uh, I want to make sure you had a chance to talk about is, uh, you know, you get into, uh, you, you do become a vending machine repairman, right? And uh, can you talk okay, a little so, bit about, about that? Yeah, so I, I did graduate. And when I graduated, I got my, my diploma. And I went to my graduation party. And one of my family members basically ran up to me and like insisted that they see my diploma because it was so, like nobody thought I was going to graduate. I, I got, there, there is a, a major turning point where I finally got on track. But up until then, like, people just assumed that I wasn't going to graduate. Like they knew I was getting poor grades. They knew that they couldn't make me do my homework very easily. Like I just didn't have that motivation. And one of the career, we had like a career day, right? Where you kind of, you, you get these stack of cards and they tell you to sort them out and you, and then you put them into a computer and the computer tells you what you should do. Like, well, here's an idea for what you should do when you graduate. And I remember getting vending machine repairman. And I just was like, that, that's me. And I th could think about going to the grocery store, you know, those little gumballs, you put the, the quarter in and you, yes. you turn them yes. and you get like a little toy. And I was like, that's, that's me, I guess. That's going to be my career. And I, I didn't really feel right to me. And there's nothing, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that profession. Nope. It's nope. perfectly, we need them. And I'm sure vending machine repairmen aren't just those. There's lots of vending machines. But I, I just remember thinking that that didn't really sound like something that I was going to do. I thought that I would be something different in my mind. When it, that was kind of like the very first wake-up call. I was just, uh, it was a blip. I was just like, this doesn't sound like what I want to do. Why did this computer tell me that? And after that, I did a few more of those things, and I always lied. I, I didn't tell the truth. I was like, oh, yes, I'm this. I wanted to get the result that I wanted, and so nice. I, I fibbed it. Yeah, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't very honest, but I didn't want to get that same result again. You know, what's, what's sad is that I do believe there's some adults who don't think that kids um, lie on those things you know, or try and manipulate it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've had this conversation I, with people. The I'm first like, one I didn't, but yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't, I don't, I'm a very honest person these days. But back then I was like, I, it wasn't even, it didn't seem like dishonesty. It was more like more honesty. Like I wanted this to come out to my icon that I wanted. Right. I wanted to, I don't remember what I got. I think, I think at the time I was interested in computer programming. So gotcha. that's what I was, I was like, I'll just answer these to get that answer and see how it goes. That's pretty, it's pretty cool. I, you know, um, Cause it's like, uh, you know, one of the things that, I mean, I've run into lots of kids who they're like, I want to see if I can make it happen. You know, I, there used to be a, well, it still exists. There's a test that the military um, usually helps. Um, they usually provide funding so forth for kids to take, and it's called the ASVAB. And what's really cool about it is that, uh, you know, it helps give you ideas about possible career paths or not career paths. And I don't know what it is that told them about me, but the Navy kept wanting to put me into nuclear-powered submarines. Uh, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I want to be on land. I'm going Army, all right? We're, <laughs> but, but they kept chasing me down looking for, you'd be great in submarines. I'm like, why are you talking to me about submarines? I get seasick anyway, but I don't know about underwater. Who knows, you know? Yeah, I mean, sometimes those, those computers spit out a, a result and then everybody else kind of just gloms onto it for some reason. You're like, no, that's not what I want. I, don't, I mean, this is just who I am right now, right? And it just takes a picture and that's who you it's who they think that you should be, I guess. It's, it's it. it is interesting because it's something that you said and that something that you answered in there tells them something about that career path. Yeah. So let's, so let's, you, you graduate and, uh, 
Um, and you're graduates with almost with quotes <laughs> at this point. I barely graduated. I, I got pushed out the door. Yeah. So I graduated. So what, what do you do first? I mean, what's going on here? Because, you know, part of what we're talking about is we're eventually going to come turn this around and talk about what, you know, what we might be able to do to help motivate someone mm-hmm. who's struggling with that. And because uh, um, that's, that's what we do. We're, uh, um, you know, that's what we're trying to figure out in school. And, and so, I mean, was there anything that was really going to kind of, I mean, was there something that kind of got your attention finally to help you graduate, <laughs> to use your, your air quotes? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I had somebody intervene on my life. That's the reality of it. I was at that learning center that I was talking about. And it's, it's a kind of an emotional story for me because if I hadn't gotten that focus and that intervention, I don't know where I'd be right now. I might not have my diploma, which would make it harder for me to get into community college. And so, and that's what started my, that's what started my upswing is that going to community college. And so I, I was going to this learning center almost every day. And that's where I'm supposed to do my homework. They were, they were supposed to teach us skills, but it's ultimately just a place where kids would go that weren't doing their homework and they would try to just make it happen. And there, were, there was this woman there and she would always just be just riding me hard, you know, like get your work done, get your work done. And I just used to hate her. I was like, God, why is this person bothering me? Why do I have to come here? I don't want to be here. It's, it's, it's uncomfortable for me to be here. I don't want to be here. And she, I just didn't like her because, you know, she's always, she's always getting my work out and making me, okay, do this, do this. She's telling me what to do. Didn't appreciate that either. And it was getting close to the end of my senior year and there was starting to be this buzz, these buzzwords, like, you're not going to graduate. That's what they would tell me. And that would just be a heavy weight on me. Like, you're not going to graduate. And I would think about all my friends and how they were going to graduate and I wasn't going to be there. And it, it was really sad for me. Cause I was like, this, this doesn't seem like it's going to be a good idea. I don't, I, I want to be there with my friends. That was more important to me is I wanted to be there with my friends. I didn't want to be this kid in my friend group that didn't graduate. So there was that, that social aspect to it. And I was there at that learning center one day and that same woman, she came over to me and she was like trying to get me to do my homework. And I had like, it was like a flip, a switch flipped or night and day, just complete change. And I had this really very important realization. I realized that this woman was gonna help me graduate. I now wanted to graduate. I didn't want to stay behind. I didn't want any of that nonsense. And this woman was going to help me graduate this. And not only did I realize that, but I realized that that's what she was doing the entire time. (laughs) So I had this, this, it's funny how these little realizations can change your attitude. And by the next day I was there sort of bright eyed. I was like, okay, what do I need to do? I need to work on this. Help me. And I, I changed my attitude. I was no longer digging in my heels. I was like, okay, this person's here to help me. Let's, let's see if I can work with her. And our relationship changed very quickly because I was no longer against the grain. I was going with it and I needed help. I realized I needed help if I was going to graduate. And so I'm so grateful for that one person because they were there when I wasn't getting the support I needed anywhere else. And for a lot of reasons, for good reasons and bad reasons, I just wasn't getting the support I needed. And I wasn't even supporting myself properly at that point. And she just kept on me and kept on me. And then one day I just realized it's like this person's here to help me this person's here to help me and I need to treat this person with a lot more respect because if I do, then we can get there together. And we did, we did, we did. 
Very cool. So, so you graduate. And so now I'm going to skip way forward because eventually you passed the bar in two states. Yeah. I'm yeah. a lawyer. You got all this. Uh, and now you're, you've got this other focus that we're going to we'll come back to eventually. Mm-hmm. But you passed the bar in two states. All right. Yeah. That, yeah. That's really cool for a kid who, who barely passed with a 1.7 and actually was fighting against the one person trying to save him. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I kind of just caught like, just pushed into the world. And at the time, the first four years of my life were just me running around trying to make it, make a few dollars and get live on my own. But yeah, I eventually end up going all the way through this whole long path and journey and end up passing the bar, the bar exam. That's the exam you need to take in order to become an attorney. And I passed that in two different States. It's a incredibly difficult exam. It requires yes. two months of studying approximately eight to 12 hours a day with no breaks. And I, let me tell you, when you're in a month of studying every single day, all your waking hours, it's so, so difficult to do that, to sit in front of a book. Your emotions are not working for you. You're not in a great mood, right? You're not just thrilled to be there. Plus you have like this looming stress of the exam itself that you just really want to pass for so many reasons. You want to pass to move on with your career. You want to pass because all your peers are going to know, right? They're going to know. And so there's a lot of pressure and a lot of pressure to do things that just aren't all that fun (laughs) in a lot, in a very small amount of time. So yeah, I I did, I passed it twice and I did become an attorney, right? And I practiced. That is so cool. And, and and so, and and so I want to, because, you know, I got to tell you, you know, most people listening to the beginning of this story would be going, and uh, so what does he do now? And we're, (laughs) and I mean, because it's so Cool. So how did you get to the point where you go from the 1.7, not really knowing what you want to do, not caring kind of, and, uh, you know, kind of in just this, just this world and, and, uh, you know, what helps you get along this path? Because you have some, you know, epiphanies that take place and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, some different uh, ideas that come to you. And uh, um, so does law school come first or do you start working in a community college? I mean, where, what is it that uh, gets your attention first before you end up at a university? So because you end up with multiple degrees too. That's yeah, yeah. I have I have a double major and I have I have the law degree. And I also graduated from real estate school much later too. I didn't I didn't pass the licensing exam, but I graduated from real estate school. Very nice. And I remember just being thrown in this world. I started working at a fast food place and I started just having these curiosities. I was really curious about certain things. Like I'd watched some TV shows like the X-Files and things like that. And I started to become really interested in a few subjects, subjects that I'm not really interested in anymore. I kind of exhausted them, but they're very mysterious subjects. Like I was very interested in extraterrestrial life at that time. And it was this initial curiosity that was a very much like a spark. And I just started becoming more and more curious. I started educating myself with the topics that I was interested in learning. So I would have just kind of go read a book that I wanted to learn about. And I met someone that was uh, older than me at one of these fast food places. And he was in a philosophy program at the, the local university. And I would talk to him on like our lunch breaks and things like that. And I realized that I kind of had a, a knack for philosophy in some ways. And I, it was really good to talk to someone that had the, the analytical skills to really delve into these subjects where there really isn't a lot of evidence for like extraterrestrial life. There's not a lot of evidence even now, 20 years later, there's not, you can't just go and like 
open an encyclopedia and see all the evidence for it. There's no evidence, you know? And so <laughs> it was just a topic I was so curious about. And that curiosity, I don't know where it came from. I don't know. I, I teach a program where I talk about curiosity and how to cultivate it, but how I, I actually got it because I didn't have someone sitting there. Hey, you know, how do you get become more curious? It just kind of came to me. And that's the snowball that, that began to change my life is that curiosity. And eventually I was like, well, you know, isn't there like a place I can go to learn? <laughs> like, you know, like I'm, I'm learning all this stuff that doesn't really have a lot of facts to it. I was learning about ghosts and watching all sorts of different radios, listening to AM radio at that time while I was delivering, I was delivering food. And so I was listening to AM radio and starting to educate my mind in all sorts of different ways. And I just started getting that thirst for more information. And so I was like, well, I've never succeeded at school, but I know there's a place that I can go and learn. Like there's a place I can go. And so I, I looked at the, the financial programs that I could take advantage of in my state. And I was kind of, I wouldn't say lucky is the right word, but if you, my current state's laws are structured so that if you start college later, you can actually get more funding because you no longer are linked with your parents anymore. Your parents aren't expected to support you financially. And so I was at right at that age where I could take advantage of those state programs. And if, if you've never been to a community college and you're thinking about going, I recommend you do take advantage of those state programs. Very cool. And I, I think cool. most states have them too. Yeah. So, um, but I then took my first college course. It was, I took study skills and I think a, an intro to reading. It wasn't even worth credit. My first reading class, first one class I took wasn't even worth credit because it was such a low class. And I was like, well, I got to start somewhere. And I, I did, I did. And I, I remember being so scared when I got that first syllabus in the study skills class, because they lay out the thought, you know, three or four weeks. And I got the second syllabus in my reading class. And it was like, Oh my God, like, am I, am I going to be able to do this? Like it felt overbearing. And I never lost that overbearing feeling. Every class I start from then until the end of law school, whenever I saw that syllabus, I kept that sinking feeling like this is too much. How, how can I possibly get through this all? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? That's very cool. Yeah, one of the things, and I got to tell you, there's a lot of adults that would have said, none of this is going to happen. You're not going to get more interested in learning. You're, it's just going to, you're going to create a world where you don't have to learn. I mean, you know, based upon your previous experience and, mm -hmm. and instead, I mean, this, I mean, cause what you are is walking living proof, not to make judgments about people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and some of my teachers in high school definitely passed judgments, but as the ones, it's the teachers that didn't pass judgment and had, faith in their ability to motivate me and faith in my ability to motivate myself. They were the ones that got me through the program. They were the ones that got me through it. There were definitely, like, like I remember a science teacher off the top of my head that just thought every time she looked at me she, and she talked to my mom, whenever they bumped into each other and just how troubled I was and how this was never going to work. And I was never going to amount to anything. And I remember every time I heard that, it was just like this, it was just another cloud over my head. I was just like, uh, I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't, I wasn't rebellious enough to be like, oh, I'm going to show her. I was like, maybe she's right. You know, it's like, maybe I won't amount to anything. Well, you d definitely did, um, threw that away. I mean, that's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. did not amount to anything. So let's kind of, let's talk about the, the school. Cause basically what, what becomes a big part of your life is this curiosity that drives, I mean, you continue yeah. to learn more. I mean, you even, uh, you, you know, as you're in your legal practice, you even begin to want to know more and have a deeper understanding of yourself. And, and so yeah. help me real quick, understand where the, where did the degrees come in? Where does the, uh, the law school versus the, 
uh, versus the uh, the other two ma- uh, majors that you end up having? Because you have a philosophy, right? And right, right. So I took that first college course and I I did the work. I I I was now more motivated. I didn't have I didn't have a, a a system that I had to be pushed through. I was motivated, personally motivated. I was curious now. I actually wanted to learn by the time I got there. And so I think I got an A and a B. I can't remember. I haven't looked at my transcripts for a while. But that was the first A I'd ever gotten. It was the first B I've ever gotten, at least like legitimately, and not just like a throwaway B. And so I was like, that that definitely helped me to get that taste of success. And the next term, I took three courses, and then the next term I took four courses, and then the next term. Um, somewhere around then I took five courses all at the community college and I was taking five courses all of a sudden and I, I felt like a super student. I was like, I'm, uh, it was a lot of work. I was working full time at the time at a fast food joint. So I was working and I was going to school and it was a completely different person than who I was. And I kind of enjoyed that. I enjoyed it. Everybody thought I was going to be a failure. And now look at me, look at me, Ma. I'm getting A's and B's and going to work full time. And I just kept adding little bits at a time. Like I started doing well here. So then I added a little bit more and then I added a little bit more. And then I went to the university level because you can get like this two year transfer degree. And so I went to the university and I had, I knew that I couldn't, it wasn't a good idea for me to take more than five classes. It was just too much. So I was like, well, what else can I add that could still make me feel like I was adding more. And that's when I started adding extracurricular activities at the university level. So I got really involved with the student organizations there. And I became a research assistant for two professors over the course of the time there, not all at once. Just the same gradual stuff. I did one professor first and then I asked if, you know, I asked around, I was hanging around the professors a lot in the university because I was always up there with helping my one professor and they were all in that same little area. And so I would just hang out there and talk with them. And I found another professor I wanted to work with. And so that's when I started to doing research assistance for two. And I just kept on adding it and I eventually became student senate and um, I was president of one of the student organizations there, the psychology club. And I ended up graduating with a double major, summa cum laude, which means top of the class in psychology and philosophy. And that took me six years. It took me six years because I started off slowly. And by the time I could have finished my standard degree with a major and minor, I enjoyed school. I was enjoying it and I wanted to stay even longer. So that's why I did the double major. I love philosophy. And so I, I stayed even longer at that point, which is kind of funny because I was just so ready to be done in high school. And it's just now I wanted to stay and hold on and be a member of the community. So cool. Cause this is, you know, it's, it's just an amazing turnaround that you have. And yeah, it all yeah. stems from that curiosity wanting to know more and learn more. And, yeah. and I, I helped teach some of the techniques that I developed along the way too. Very cool. And so, and, yeah. Go, go ahead. And I, I didn't, I, I didn't really, I was, I'm very much a self-learner. That's why I call myself an avid self-educator is because I, I remember one time I was in college and I was with one of the professors and they said something that absolutely terrified me at the time. They, it, ter- it scared me. It scared me much like looking at that syllabus. And they told me, they said, well, we're not really here just to teach you. We're here to teach you how to teach yourself. We're here to teach you how to teach yourself. And that's, I thought that was scary for some reason. Like it was like, uh, like the, a responsibility had just been placed on me. It's like, well, if, uh, if I'm being taught how to teach myself, then I'm going to be expected to teach myself later. Maybe expected, but that's that mentality that helps you get through grad school for sure. Most definitely. That's, that's yeah. awesome. So yeah. 
all right, so you've got all this stuff happening like this. You get this turnaround. And so I'm, I'm guessing that after the double major, this is when you you take on law school and the, and yeah, the, yeah. I was, I was thinking about going into psychology and all the, the psychology professors that I was working with, they thought I was going to go into psychology too. But that, that guy I met earlier who was in that philosophy program, he helped me get interested in philosophy. And so he eventually went on to law school. And so I had that, that role model in my life. I don't think I would have ever thought about going to law school. It was not even in my mind. It was just sort of like those imaginary careers like doctors and, and, and lawyers where I just, I don't have the stuff for that kind of idea. But he was able to do it. And we would constantly engage in philosophical discourse where we would take up positions and just argue. And sometimes we would take up different positions and argue again, you know, and just frequently back and forth and learn how to, to effectively communicate and really get down to empirical analysis and things like that. So it was, you can make really strong fact-based arguments in order to convey your positions. And when I saw him going to law school, that's when I kind of got the idea. And then one day he just like, you know, you might be good at law school. And I was like, what? You think so? And he's like, well, look, we, man, we talk every day about arguing and you know, you know, you have that psychology background. It might actually be good for you. And that little seed is very much like the, the, the initial sort of curiosity, it, it grew, you know, and I was like, wow, you know, I've been doing so well. Could I, is that even possible for me? Like, like it, it was unfathomable for a long time, but I kept on thinking about it. And I was like, wow, you know, it's a lot of scary things that go on there. And I know that it'll be very difficult, but that confidence that I had developed over the years definitely pushed me over the edge. And I, and then I took the, the entrance exam It's called the LSAT that you take, you take that exam and then that's what the, they use your GPA and they use that score to, and then you use that to apply to law schools and then they decide if that's good enough for their school for a lot of reasons. And oh, you also get a personal statement too that you write to them. But so I had, I, I decided, well, I was like, well, I guess I'll take the exam and just see what happens. Cause if I, if I'm not smart enough, I actually, I was overconfident. I was like, oh, I'm gonna get a 99 at the time. But I took the test exam before I took the main exam and I got my score. It wasn't a bad score. It wasn't an incredible score. It was good enough. It was good enough to get into a law school. So I was like, okay, well, what I'll do, like, I don't know. The LSAT is a really well-made exam because it's, it's meant to, to measure your actual acuity. It's like an IQ exam, right? Like right. it's not meant to be an exam you can get better at easily. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to measure very, something very fundamental. And I remember spending all summer going to the library focusing on that, focusing on that, focusing on that, taking exams, taking exams, reading about the exam. And I took, I took the exam and I knew I was only going to take it once. I'm going to take it once and just go with it. Whatever I end up is where I end up. And I got the same exact score, but I got in my practice exams. So I don't know. I don't know how that worked, but it's, it's a scary exam because there's, it's timed. And a lot of the questions you read them. And I remember it's frequently happening with this exam. You read the question, and there is no spark in your brain. It's just like, what did I just read? I don't get it. And so then you have to figure it out how to answer it. So I'm pretty sure practicing helped because the actual test environment, everyone's tired. I remember just sitting there. It was like I hadn't gotten enough sleep any of the nights and you're stressed out. And I remember sitting in that room, just like my eyes kind of burning because I hadn't gotten an appropriate amount of sleep. And so I'm glad I practiced, but I ended up getting the same exact score, which was just funny to me. It's, it's, it's wild. It's, it's cool. Cause it's, it tells you a lot about that, that test. So tell me, um, you know, so you end up graduating, you end up with a legal practice, you know, you pass the bar, you end up with a legal practice. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, while you're doing, 
doing practicing law, um, you know, you start uh, having this idea that uh, you want to know more about who you are and uh, and humanity and so forth. And and uh, you know, one of the things you told me is that you became fascinated with the different religions of the world. And you started studying them. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah, I I was doing well in in my practice, and I used my forward thinking skills, and it, it was partially just, is this what I want, how I want to spend my time in the next 10 years or 20 years? Is this how I want to spend my time? I was working as a property attorney with a, a really cool lawyer and he, he was helping me learn my skills and I had started my own practice. I started my own LLC and I was working in a little office with a bunch of other solo attorneys. Things were going pretty well, but I, I was like, I saw the work I was going to be doing and I knew that I'd be doing that for a long time. It's like, well, you know, I might get good at it. I could, I think I could get good at it. And I, I think that I could be fine at this job, but um, I, I, I hadn't really seen a lot of the world and I hadn't seen a lot. There was still a lot of mysteries. This almost goes back to when that first spark of curiosity, there's still a lot of mysteries in the world that I wanted to solve. And I, I had the opportunity to, to take that. My family had some money for me that I could use to travel. And they were very proud of me at this point, given that what had happened. And so I was lucky enough to have a little bit of, of money stored away, uh, my own personal money, as well as some money like that. So I was like, well, I have this unique opportunity here where I can, I can travel. And I'm very lucky. I'm very grateful for that because not a lot of people, a lot of the, my peers were just had so much debt that they had, it's loss was very expensive. And so once you get out, if you have to be, you have to start working on that debt. And so I didn't have that as much. And so I had this unique opportunity. And so I started traveling and it was kind of like this, it was a good time in my life. I had this opportunity, but it was, I, I didn't feel right in myself either. I didn't quite feel right. That was, I think that was part of it. It wasn't this like this logical thing anymore that I could, that I could pick apart with my philosophy degree, you know, and to analyze it down to the smallest component. There was some, there was an emotional component to it that I, I didn't fully understand. I just wasn't feeling well completely. So it was a combination of this curiosity and I just, I really wasn't feeling well. And not, not physically, but sort of on the emotional mental level. And so I, that's when I decided that I would go check out uh, San Francisco for a little while and, and, and check that out. And in San Francisco, um, San Francisco is an interesting place. There's like this undercurrent of, I guess, like the common word is spirituality, but I don't really like that term because it's so vague. It, it's, it's a very, it's, it's like the development of consciousness and it's very like, uh, they like crystals and things and they like going to places and, and humming together and doing all these, all these sort of things that don't necessarily have a lot of scientific backing. But when you, when you participate in, they definitely have a, a, an emotional, they change you in a little bit. They change you a little bit. Yeah, I, I almost thought I was interrupting you there. So yeah, I, I, <laughs> I'll edit that I, part out. Yeah. It, it, so, so along this journey, I mean, it, it, I mean, what do you think? I mean, one of the things that uh, um, you told me was you've been to over seventy faith centers, uh, play, or places of yeah, worship, yeah. and that you lived in places like Seattle. Um, you just talked about San Francisco, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Los Angeles. Miami, yeah. and you even spent a month in the Peruvian Amazon jungle. So, yeah. You got to, you got to make sure you get to the jungle and you uh, want to hear the jungle, huh? Okay. So I, I, I started having all these interesting ideas. 
when I was in college, I learned a very strong fundamental concept. And that is that you need to learn how to work without being paid. You need to learn how to work without being paid. We all need money to survive and to pay rent and things like that. But if you can learn how to work without being paid, which is usually just work for yourself, that's when you can really accomplish things. And I was very, um, I was kind of a, a critique and a skeptic of organized religion at the time. But I knew that it wasn't fair for me to, it wasn't fair for me to criticize the religious establishment without knowing, actually knowing what's going on, right? So, you know, oh, the church is this and that and the other, but I don't have no idea what's happening. Like, I don't know. I don't know what they're doing in there. So that's when I started my, my what I called it, I called it at the time a pilgrimage. I called it a pilgrimage. And I wanted to see what was happening. I wanted to know for myself. I couldn't, there was nowhere I could read about it. And so I just, I just started going to different churches. I, go, I went to a lot of Christian churches. I went to some Buddhist churches. I went to some Hindu churches and a few things that are in between that and, and Jewish churches. I went to all of them. And my attitude towards religion changed pretty quickly by being immersed in that environment. I went in and kind of a skeptical and I went in with a critique mindset that this wasn't a good thing in our society. And through my pilgrimage, I, I learned that the similarities between these different denominations and these different religions are far stronger than their differences. They are far more significant than their differences. And the people that you meet when you go to a church um, even in taking it, even in the context of several churches, they all are very welcoming and it's, a, it's usually a warm environment. There is maybe one place I went to where I was kind of just like, wow, this is a little strange. But other than that, other than that, they were all very, I felt very welcome. I felt very accepted for who I was. I'm not sure if everyone would experience that, but I did. I went in there with a very positive attitude and a very accepting attitude. I didn't go in there to critique them. I came in there to see what they were doing on an objective level and just understand what they were doing, why they were doing it and what they were talking about. And I learned a lot of valuable lessons along the way, those good old wholesome life lessons, which is why we have these religious texts is to deliver these, these life lessons. And I learned them over the time. And the only reason I stopped going to churches is because of the, the current, current uh, pandemic. But so I eventually just kept going and kept going and kept going. And I appreciated the change that was occurring in me as a result of my objective analysis. I appreciated the fact that I had had one attitude about something, went and found out what the deal was, get real facts, real information. And then I transformed over that period of time. And now I've never, I, I was a philosophical skeptic of religion. And then I ended up uh, a sort of, um, a supporter of sorts, a, a, a multi-denominational supporter where I don't really favor or disfavor any particular religion, but I, I think that there is definitely something of value for our society for this system. Very cool. And then, I'll, go so ahead. I'll just go in right onto the Amazon if that's cool. That yeah, because right? I, I got to make sure you're going. I was getting ready to yeah, say, yeah. wait a second, you've left out the jungle. so Because my life is very, like I have this, it's very like contrasted. Like I'll have this and then I went to the Amazon jungle because I met this, uh, a woman in San Francisco. I was, I, one of the, part of my journey is working with a lot of coaches 
And that's what's made me a great coach today is that I worked, if I wanted to learn how to be a good coach and help other people and help them learn the techniques that I've learned over my life, I needed to see what they, how they did it. I needed to know. And so I, I hired a few coaches of my own and, and one of them was a, a self-prescribed healer, something I was also skeptical. She just called herself a healer. And she wasn't a psychologist. She, she, she worked with energy work is what, how she described it. And so uh, I went, I put on my curiosity hat, not my judgmental hat. And I was like, okay, well, I want to understand if this is real. Is she telling the truth? Is, is she capable of doing this? How does it work? Uh, it is real. And it works very um, almost naturalistically, I think. I think it's very old. It's like very old traditions before. Prior to psychology, there were these healers in the old world. And I think that that's what they're kind of tapping into. There is ways that you can heal someone in the moment, um, particularly on an emotional level. But so I was curious. I was curious. I was like, okay, well, this girl's a healer. I don't really get it. I don't, <laughs> my, the, the philosopher maybe just thinks he's like mumbo jumbo. But she really sent me this email after I met her and she, she was a coach. So she had all these little programs and cool things that you could do with her. She's like, I'm, do you have the calling to go to the Amazon jungle? And I was like, you know what? I didn't before, but I think I do now. So uh, it was it seemed exciting to me. I was feeling particularly adventurous. I had never been down, down, I've never been to South America. I've been to Mexico and that's about it. And I was feeling particularly adventurous and, and ready to try something new. And I, I went through, I went through her process and I got all signed up and me and about eight or nine different people. Some of the people I actually already had met before at the, where I had met her at a, a sort of social event that I'd met her, another coaching program, actually. I took a coaching program and then I met several coaches and then I took classes from a few of the coaches I had met there. And um, I actually considered myself more of a teacher rather than a coach, but that's beyond here and there. And so we all went down there in the Amazon jungle and you, you arrive in, in Peru in this port, this, uh, this airport called Lima. And it's, it's kind of re reflective of uh, Mexico. The, the property laws in, in Peru are a little strange. Uh, this isn't legal advice, but they're a little strange in that they can get a tax break if their house isn't finished in a certain way. So they don't have to play for their third floor of their house. If, like if it doesn't have a roof or if it doesn't have a wall. And so there's a bunch of people taking advantage of this strange loophole. And so there's a lot of just like these strange, like unfinished buildings. Nice. And everyone taking a tax cut. So I, I think that's true. I mean, I, you might want to do more research. Maybe they change it. But at the time, I was like, well, why is that? And then someone explained it to me. I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm not an expert in Peru law, so don't take it for, for <laughs> granted. But so it's a very unusual sort of site. You drive through the countryside and they have all these unfinished buildings. So they can all get tax cuts. And so I, I landed in Lima and then I flew to this, this, this little town called Iquitos. And in Iquitos, it's, it's a mountain city. So they don't actually have a lot of cars or buses or vans or anything like that. What they do have is a bunch of scooters and motorcycles with these little rickety carriages behind them. So it's like a horse carriage, only you got someone on a motorcycle zipping around town. And it's just this it's a complete culture shock. It's a complete culture shock when you first get there because there's no cars. You get in this thing that looks like it's going to fall apart, basically. And you got a guy on a motorcycle and he takes you to your destination. And I was really lucky because when I got to the airport, I think I left from Seattle. When I got to the airport, I met someone there. Or maybe it was San Francisco. I might have been San Francisco. Uh, I met someone there that was with the program, and she knew Spanish. 
And so that helped me a lot because I didn't know a lick of Spanish. I didn't know, I knew a little bit. I, I learned it along the way. So we get to Quitos and the next day we get on this boat and we're on the river and we're going into the Amazon jungle with this group. And it's very scary. It's very scary is not the right word. It's very unnerving, I guess, to just see civilization leave behind you. You're going into, we're going to be traveling for five hours by boat along this river. So that means we're five hours away from all civilization. And we, we stop, we get out of the tourist boat and they put us on even a smaller boat, a little, like this little skipper. It's got a motor and a roof, but it's just like this long skipper thing. And we're all just kind of crammed in there and you can't help but just be alert and stay awake and look around. And then you, you, we headed into the, the Amazon jungle and it was, it was quite scary. I've got a video project where I took videos of it and I have that all online. Uh, it, I should note that my journey with through the churches, I've logged through video um, each church I went to. So if at a future point I want to watch it, I can. It's all online. So it's all documented. And I, I went out there to the Amazon and man, what a life-changing experience that was. You go all the way into the jungle five hours in and we stayed at this little, little, little village to call it even a village. It was a combination of about five buildings. Um, most of them uninsulated. It's just boards, boards on the floor, boards on the wall and boards on the ceiling. So there's no insulation. It's just open. And we went out there and we, we hung out in the jungle for a while. We did some plant medicine. Most of it tasted like bark and had no effect whatsoever. We did a lot of the, 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 the person that I worked with there, she showed us some of her healing techniques, which kind of seemed a little hooky, but also seemed to actually produce results. Kind of, uh, I think Reiki, Reiki, if I said that right, is a common practice. Like that's the word that she used. And I've met other Reiki practitioners. It's very, they try to manipulate energy in a certain way, which if you're not familiar with it, it can be very hooky. It, it cannot make sense, but the results are there. It's a very interesting thing to watch because it, the person, whether through a placebo effect or some sort of real occurrence, does seem to actually have a response to the work that they do. Cool. But so I was very interested in that. And we did a lot of holistic stuff. We did a lot of writing in journals, a lot of sharing um, and things of that nature. It was an incredible journey. And I was there for four weeks. In wow. that. So by the, the second week, you get a little unnerved. Like, <laughs> gosh, I'm still here. There's a, lots of mosquitoes, lots and lots of mosquitoes. I, by then, I was fully eaten alive. And it's like, you're two weeks in. The mosquitoes aren't going to leave you alone because you're just this American that's juicy. And so they just go right after you. And so you have to deal with that the entire time. But yeah, it was an incredible journey. And we went on a few hikes in the Amazon jungle. I didn't see a lot of animals, but it was incredible. And there was, a, there was really something that really I remember. They, when I got to the village, they had these chicks, like chickens, baby chicks. And they had just looked like they had just been born. So they were just like Little little chicks running around like you see and during Easter, you know, like the, the pictures and things. Just the smallest chicken that you could possibly imagine. And while we were there, they grew up over those courses four weeks. So it was very artistic in that way, very representational of the journey that we were going through. That's cool. What it, yeah. You had some neat experiences. And, I got, and, and what I want to kind of do is bring this back because we're going to – we'll finish up by talking about what you're doing now and mm -hmm. uh, what's going on. And, yeah. But – but before that, what I'd like to do is, I mean, listen to all this stuff. I mean, it's, you know, to my audience, you know, one of the things you want to think about is that he graduated with a 1.7 and uh, probably for the most part, there were a lot of adults going, yeah, Dan, we're not too sure what's going on with you for the rest of your life, but uh, um, good luck. And, 
and here you've had all these experiences, you've done all this stuff, and uh, you've got a, a business going that we're going to get to in just a minute. What do you think would have helped you when you were in uh, junior high, middle school, and high school? Man, it's kind of hard to answer that, and I'll tell you why. There were people that were trying to help me. There were people that were trying to help me. Occasionally, when all that homework would back up, my parents would try to help me. My grandma would try to help me. There were people at the school level that were trying to help me. I kind of, the system itself is designed to educate people, teach people math, learning, or reading and writing as, as broadly as possible. You have all these people that need to be taught these fundamental skills and the system works well, but it's, it's not going to get everybody. And then we, we already know that we know that. And so I, I'm not really a critique of the system itself because of what it's trying to do. It's trying to educate as many people as, as possible. I think what really changed in the way I, what I was doing it, it was that my attitude changed. So the question is, how do you change someone's attitude? And that that's a topic that I discuss on my course because changing your attitude can change everything. I've got evidence of that, personal evidence, that once you change your attitude, your entire life can change. It can change the way you feel. It'll change the way the things that you think about. It'll change the way that you handle other people. It's changing your attitude is incredible. So how, how, could you, how could we do that? Maybe I might throw that back at you and we can explore it a little bit, but how, how would you change someone's attitude? Have you, have you ever witnessed an attitude change when you were being a principal? I have. I mean, it, and it usually took a lot of, a lot of people. Uh, first of all, it took the student being willing to be open, just like you were eventually when you realized that that uh, teacher, that staff member was trying to help you. And so you stopped fighting against her. You know, it's, it takes the, the, the kid to make that, have that epiphany, that, that light bulb go off to go, you know, and so typically there's something that happens in there, whether it's not usually by threat or by fear of being kicked out of the house or, or, uh, you know, getting suspended or something like yeah. that. It's usually, it's usually staff members who there's some connection that happens. And that's usually what the best tool at this disposal of a school working with a, at the disposal that yeah. school has to offer. There we go. Are those caring adults who, who connect and take time and you know the ones who don't that's it's too bad so sad because yeah. that that's the real magic that happens is when the the kid connects with that person um, that has that ability to make them care yeah. and uh, and I think that's the that's where those light bulbs have gone off and you see the magic and you see the change because the the caring adult helps the attitude shift to caring and it usually comes by doing things that the kids know you know, you're not just doing this because you get paid for it. And that's something that, uh, you know, that, and that appears in all kinds of different ways from, you know, having book, book readings to help a kid get uh, further along with a small group or reading that, teaching you how to, to read at a higher level, at, you know, at a coffee shop and everybody's gathering on a Saturday, the kid looks and goes, I, I know these teachers aren't getting paid for this. Matter of fact, they bought the books, you know, or, the, <laughs> uh, you know, or doing the stuff like, uh, uh, running the club where they spend a lot of time, um, you know, it could be a philosophy club philosophizing mm -hmm. about something and learning how to yeah. argue or debate. And, you know, and it's, there's any number of things from athletics to, to the, the actual classes where the, the teacher puts so much time and effort into it and then spends time with, with the kids who are just not wanting to do, trying to figure out how to, to get mm -hmm. them. And, it, and eventually they can't make them, but it's the, it's that, that light bulb going off going, 
this person cares enough that they're they're helping me see that there's something to this thing called school. And, I, I I agree with you. The threats never really worked for me, <laughs> and the, the it, it wasn't the threat of not graduating that scared me. It was the the fact of not graduating that scared me, and I never I never really responded to 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 those academic threats at those levels. And I've heard stories where people, you know, parents were threatening to kick them out. You know, it's like the kid's not even 18 yet, you know, and the parents are already trying to, they're trying to like strong arm them. And that just usually builds up a lot of resentment. And it, it, it goes back to like the emotional health of the, the individual. When you do all those threats, it's sending them downward and it's not going to help them motivate them to, to accomplish anything. Mm-hmm. And I, so I, I completely agree with you there. The, it's, it's, it's definitely an art to, try to cultivate that attitude change there isn't yeah that's we know we, we can say a few things that it's not it's like okay you don't want to threaten the student you want to you want to be there for them and it's more of the factual nature of the of their situation that might be you don't want to threaten them that they might get an f but you want to present it more of a factually in a factual way or you you, you look at the course of the, we can't you can't graduate if you do this it's not a threat it's just the reality the fact of the situation and that definitely helped me um and, and I couldn't agree with you more. It's those, it's the, it's the teachers and the, the staff that kind of use their intuition and their instincts to find those students that they could help that might not be on the right track. And then just kind of giving their mind what that mind needs to make that, to connect those dots, to get to that attitude switch. And, you know, the, the person I worked with in high school, she wasn't effective at it, but it worked in the long run. Eventually I flipped over. I didn't, she, I don't know if she was perfectly good at it, but she was ultimately effective, right? Like it, at first it was, it felt just more like someone just like pulling me along. And I was like, no, I don't want to do what you're telling me. But I, I definitely agree with you. It's, it's, it's those intervening humans that seem to, you know, they can't help everyone, but they can help. It's the starfish story, right? You know, the, the kids picking up starfish and throwing them to the ocean and someone comes along and they go, well, you can't help every starfish. Why are you doing that? And then he picks one up, he throws it in the ocean. He goes, well, I helped that one. I helped that one. Okay. And that's the attitude that I still take on today. And that's the attitude that I think that an educator should take on too. Very cool. I love that. That's uh, great advice right there. So let's, let's shift to what you're doing now. Uh, you have a, uh, a, an initiative that you call FM Intensive. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So the organization is called the FM Initiative. And I, I wanted to call it the uh, FM University, but there is, um, that's a protected word in some states. So <laughs> I, I couldn't, I, I was like, oh, so that, that kind of gives them my, the mentality of it is that I want to teach you something. And I, I changed the name to FM Initiative. And the program that I teach is called the FM Intensive. And it's a 90-day uh, f- sort of full-on take on how to I, – I go over so much material that you don't find in the colleges because that's what I wanted to teach. I want to teach something that you can't find anywhere else. I went on this huge, long journey, and I learned all these things that most people don't have the chance to learn. And it's not just things that you find in a book. It's the fine things that you find in the life lessons. And I wanted to really dissolve that into a course so that somebody that was ready to take their life to the next level that was having difficulties um, accomplishing the things that they want to do. And they're having, like people have sometimes have dreams and they just don't know how to get there. They just don't know how to get there. So I developed this 90 day course and most of it's teaching, but you do get one-on-one time with me personally. And 
Um, we, I, I give you a questionnaire so I can see where you're at in your life. And then, and then I cater the program specifically for you. The audio remains the same for everybody, but the program is designed specifically for that individual so that you can really get where you want to be. So you can become that self-actualized leader that I know anybody's capable of doing. Anybody's capable of doing. I see leaders all over the place. And I really enjoy this attitude that uh, a leader begins with themselves. They have to learn how to lead themselves. And then from there, they can take those skills, those, that amazing foundation that I help you learn. And then you can use that to help lead other people. That's really difficult, leading other people, learning how to get people to do not just what you want. That's the key in leadership is that if you want to be a good leader, you don't get people to do what you want. That is a power dynamic. What you do is you get people to, you, you find common ground. You find what they want and then you lead them and then you lead them. And that goes on to being able to lead leaders. I call it like, I, I even made up a word. I think it's fellow leadership. I, I combine two words because when you work with leaders, you really have to adopt a very um, accepting and a very non-expecting attitude. And when you can reach that magical zone, that's where really incredible things happen. Because when you can work with leaders, then you can really accomplish so many things in your life. And it all just begins with learning how to lead yourself, making sure that you have all those underlining tools that help you excel. And I've got tools that I teach that you don't find in the education system because they are often viewed as unscientific. But with my knowledge and philosophy, I have distilled the best absolute things that you can learn from all the world religions, as well as fringe books that I, I can't even, I've read books that I can't even say on the air because they, they're so rare and they're so um, like strange or protected that it's not, it's not a good idea for me to even mention them. And I've read them. And so I, I bring this all to you so that when the right person comes along and they go, you know what, I'm ready to accomplish something, but I just don't feel like I'm fully prepared. Well, I'm here to prepare you. I'm here to prepare you. Very cool. So who's your, who, Who's your um, main audience? Who, who are you looking for? I mean, who's that person that should yeah. knock on your door and say, hey, Dan. If, um, you, if you have the call for leadership, that's, that's who, I'm, that's who my, the person I, I'm looking for. If you feel like you are ready to become a better leader, if you are ready to take control of your life and lead yourself, if those words sort of resonate with you, then this program is going to transform your life. I've designed it specifically for it to be effective and for it to – actually have results. That's why I designed it. I wanted to, to have results. And I use conceptual art. I use music. I use audio. I use one-on-one -on -one coaching, all of which culminate into a, an intensive because I'm coming at you from every angle that I can to get information in your head and move along the, the, the sort of consciousness development when you first hear a piece of information. When you first hear a piece of information, if you are not used to it, it just kind of enters your mind. But over time, it, it goes through a process, and eventually, you're ready to use that information in your day-to-day -day life. And I talk about that in my program. Excellent. So it's, it's the, the people that are ready to take on a new task and that are ready to lead themselves or other people. This program is for you, and it's made to produce results. It's made to produce results. And I take my the background in my psychology, my bachelor's in psychology, my philosophy, and I take even tools that I learned in law school. And of course, all that wisdom I learned out through my travel and I distill it down and I give it to you in a way that's very manageable and guaranteed to produce a result inside you. Guaranteed to produce a result, both the way you feel and the way you look about life. And you can reach me at 
FM Initiative. That's the letter F, the letter M, and then the word initiative at outlook.com. Or you can go to fminitiative.com and look at the website. Awesome. And I'll have that information in the show notes. So it's good stuff. So, so I got to ask you this, uh, how do you, you know, when, uh, before we leave this, this subject and finish out uh, our talk, um, so how do you know when somebody's being successful in your, uh, in your course? Well, I actually talk about success in my course. I talk about success a lot and I redefine it as a, a part of your journey. Most people in our American system take success to be a big amount of cash, right? Like, oh, I made a bunch of money and now I'm successful. I don't really view it like that at all. I don't view it like that at all. I think success is an attitude. And I think success is you deciding what you want to do, what you want to accomplish, and then you go and doing it. That's what makes you successful. So you, you're here, you at one point, you decided to make a, a podcast and you wanted to have guests and you wanted to talk to them about certain subjects. So I, I see you as a, an, a monumental success. You at some point decided to do this and then you, you made this great program that people can come on to and talk to you. So when you start to really see that in a different light, it becomes easier for you to be a success. It becomes easier and it should be easy because all the success is, is you accomplishing the goals that you set out for yourself. And in my program, I, I keep bringing it up, but I, this is the stuff that I talk about because this is how I know people get from point A to point B from going from the desire for what they want and accomplishing it. And it's all about just breaking things down into that incremental step so that you can be, always be successful. If you want to start a new business, something I talk about in my program and I have resources for that, you can break it down to the most incremental steps so you can be successful every single day. If you jump on the internet and you type in, how do I start a business? That is a success that day. It's a success, it's successful. I've, uh, uh, and that attitude has definitely helped me go along and that's what I teach. It's what I teach. That's awesome. And so one more time, tell them where they can reach out yeah. to you. Yeah, that's fminitiative at outlook.com. Now, initiative is a hard word to spell, so I recommend using Google. I, I did that on purpose. So it's fminitiative at outlook.com or fminitiative.com. Excellent. Once again, I'll have that in the show notes. So, Thank you. so Dan, Dan, as we're finishing up, uh, I've got two questions I want to ask you, and one of them goes like this. Uh, what do you do when things get so overwhelming that you want to quit? How do you keep going? Yeah. I mean – there couldn't be a more perfect question given what we just talked about. And there have been a lot of times in my journey when it just feels exhausting in the middle of me studying for the bar exam. Um, when I was building this initiative, there is a lot of, there's no support. Sometimes you're all by yourself. There's nobody there to help you. Sometimes you, you're lucky enough to have a teacher or a coach that can guide you through those times. And sometimes you just don't have that. You just don't have that. And all there is is yourself. You're by yourself and you have to figure out how you're going to keep going. The, the philosophical way I do it is that I break things down into incremental steps. If I'm having difficult with difficulty accomplishing a certain goal, I break it down to the most simplest incremental step. And sometimes that step is just, I need to put my hands on the keyboard. You know, let's say I'm writing a book. Let's say I'm writing a book and I'm having a hard time getting that done. I, it would be a task that's easy to quit. Books are difficult to write. So I would break it down to the, even the smallest thing. I need to put my hands on the keyboard. I need to open up the word processing application. I need to write a single word. And each time I do that, I think of it as a minor excess. 
success. I did it. I did it. I did what I wanted to do. And I type out that word. And then I would, um, I, I, I also frequently talk about this idea of this one push-up rule where it's very easy to do one push-up. It takes about 10 seconds. You go down the ground and you, and you do a push-up. But uh, that one push-up is infinitely more powerful and infinitely more effective than zero push-ups and zero push-ups. And if you do one push-up a day for a month, that's 30 more push-ups than you would have done. If you do it for a year, that's 365 more push-ups. And that's a huge, huge number compared to zero. So when it comes to like writing a book, the one push-up rule will be applied to, well, just write one sentence, one sentence. So you write that one sentence and you're done. You're done for that day. But what happens is that once you start writing, and I know this, that's how the one push-up rule works, is that when you start writing, you might write a second sentence or a third sentence. And then you might start getting a stream of them. And some days you might just sit there and just write one. And that's how I continue on when I feel like quitting. Because quitting isn't just a, it can kind of come at you from two angles, right? It comes at you from the motivational, which is the emotional component. You don't feel like doing something. You don't feel like doing it. And then there's the psychological, the, sorry, I shouldn't use that word, the mental aspect where you aren't sure. You know you want to write something, but you're not even sure what you want to write. So you have to figure out ways to overcome that. And the best way to do that is to break things down into the smallest incremental steps and kind of pat yourself on the back as you move through them. And that's how I got through those syllabuses over the years where that always just like felt like a huge burden, a pack of rocks on my back. I went through it by just taking one rock out at a time and putting it on the ground, one rock at a time sitting on the ground. So that's, that's my advice on that regard. Love it. Love it. Last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference? If so, who was it? And what would you say if you had a chance to say thank you? Yeah, thank you for asking that. It's that woman at that learning center. She didn't give up on me. She didn't give up on me. And that's what made the difference. Because when I was giving up on myself, that person was there. That person in that academic system was there to help me. And I had given up on myself for a long time. I did for a lot of reasons. I was unmotivated. I didn't think that it, it mattered. And through someone's efforts, that person's efforts in particular might have changed the entire trajectory. If I hadn't got my, if I hadn't graduated college, or sorry, if I hadn't graduated high school, I would have had to gotten my GED, which would have just been another hurdle. Would I have done it? I don't know. I don't know. Would I have had, would I have had the emotional support to think that I could accomplish it if I hadn't gone through that? I don't know. I don't know. So I definitely view that there is a teacher and I would, I would keep praise and thanks and I'm sure she, she helped other people as well. In fact, just talking about this makes me want to contact her and just and maybe send her a link to this podcast or something because I, I am deeply appreciative of that woman and the fact that she put in that effort when I didn't want to put an effort in on myself. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to help myself, but someone was there to try to help me. And that definitely made the difference. And I am very, very much thankful and appreciative. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. And, and Dan, it's been awesome talking with you today. You know, kudos to you on figuring things out and pursuing that curiosity that just uh, made yeah. uh, life work out for you. Because what you did was you showed that, uh, um, you know, it's just it, like you said, it's that change in the attitude and, and being curious and wanting to move forward. And you changed your mind and, and uh, you made so many awesome things happen. And I wish you the best with uh, the FM initiative. I'd love to have you as I mean, I think anybody would be wonderful. Want you as their coach. I know I would. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciated chatting with you. It was a great time. Uh, I knew that when we first met that it was going to be a, a great interview. I thought we, when we first met, most people don't know this, 
I came in, I was like, oh yeah, I was a problem student. And then Steven's like, oh, I was a principal at this many schools. And I was like, holy cow. So we have very opposite experiences of the, of the school system. And so it was immediately just, I became very curious. And I was like, oh, tell me about you and tell me about me. So it, it's been a great delight working on your podcast. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.